Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Is the world more peaceful since the revolution? It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Hello and welcome to the first sort of official episode of Still Watching The Mandalorian. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair special correspondent Anthony Bresnikan. <laughs> Every week on this podcast, we are going to break down the latest episode of the Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, starting this week with an episode titled Chapter One, uh, the introduction of the Mandalorian and the whole universe that we will be playing in. Uh, there are no spoilers in this podcast. We will be talking about chapter one only. So don't worry. Um, I, you know, but there will, some, like, but there will be chapter one spoilers. Yes. So you, you should be all caught up to chapter one before you listen. Um, that, you know, there are some rumors I've heard on the wind and I might allude to those, <laughs> but nothing, nothing concrete and nothing too scary. I promise. Uh, we also have a couple really fun interviews this week, which we're really excited to bring to you. We've got, uh, Anthony's chat with 
John Favreau, who is the series creator, showrunner, executive producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we will have some, some John and Anthony in here. And then Anthony and I both got to talk to absolute legend, Carl Weathers. Carl Weathers. <laughs> <laughs> so you will hear that at the end of the episode, our, our conversation with Carl Weathers. Um, and so we are going to go through the episode beat by beat, sort of scene by scene, uh, point out maybe some things you might have missed, point out some of our observations, just chat about it in general. Uh, if you have anything that you want us to talk about, something you observed, something you're excited about, you can always email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. I love reading listener emails out on air. So stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, or concerns, corrections. Um, I think we got one little thing wrong. I did. last week yes all right i got one little thing wrong last week but i agree with you i was like yes yes Kutano <laughs> is definitely a twilight and i i stroked well, my chin and nodded my head so well, i'm complicit it, you know it wasn't such a like uh declaration but just uh in passing i mentioned that Sokotano was a twilight she is actually a togruta alien no points this round sorry <laughs> but she, she does have the head tails which was yeah what we were talking that's about. what threw me <laughs> you know. That was all part of our preview <laughs> episode, which we recorded last week, which you can listen to if you are completely lost in the world of Mandalorian. We did a lot of uh, stage setting, but we will do uh, a little more uh, in, in this episode as well. That, Before we, that was our sorry, prequel. That was our prequel era. That was the yes, way. yes. <laughs> a lot of extra CGI in that, in that podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we get to sort of our rundown of the episode, we want to start with like the biggest thing of the episode. So seriously, if you haven't watched chapter one yet, mm-hmm. Warning. get out of here. <laughs> here it comes. Don't complain later. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk get out of here. We're going to talk, like talk about the being. That's how the actors spoke about this <laughs> revelation when we spoke to them a couple weeks ago. Right, Joanna? Do you remember? Yeah, that? we were, we were trying to get them to talk about what happens at the end of this episode a little bit. We knew, okay, full disclosure, we knew there was, some small thing. We knew that there was a some that the thing he discovered was some young, small thing, babyish thing. Yeah, we didn't know anything else, and so we were we were trying to get the actors to talk about it, and they were, and we were like, "You're allowed to talk to us," which they were, and they even then, without permission, they wouldn't say a gender, they wouldn't say anything, they just would say the being, like they could feel the uh crosshairs of the sights of star wars like on their forehead like don't talk about what it is but it is a little a little green thing a little I, as I, I wrote in my uh my 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 recap of the episode a little i thought he looked like a shamrock shake come to life just this cute little <laughs> delicious nubbin of a of a i guess what we're calling a baby yoda I mean, you could, we, I have some options. We're going to, I'm going to offer up some options to you throughout this episode of what we might call this thing. Okay. But I think, uh, but actually yeah. the being, the being is kind of cool because, um, that's not, that's much better than baby Yoda because we don't know whether this is a, like a clone or, you know, right. I hate to call the species a Yoda. You know what I mean? It's not right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's clarify a few things. So what's really, what's a big deal about this? Uh, in and above the fact that there is like an adorable little Muppety thing now in, in the show, um, is that Yoda is this figure that George Lucas has historically been very secretive about. We don't know the name of his species. We don't know the name of his home planet. Dagobah is not his home planet. We don't know the name of any of that. And George Lucas has intentionally never talked about it. And not only that, he has, you know, as the world of Star Wars has expanded beyond George Lucas's core 
storytelling, he has issued a mandate, I believe, that, that these figures, these, these creatures are not allowed to be used. Yeah. So he made so them kind of a one of a kind creature, you know, and, uh, with the exception of Yaddle, which I think was a misstep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yaddle looks <laughs> like not great in the prequel no. series. Yaddle is is on the uh see uh her, I believe it's a it's a lady uh on the Jedi Council uh in Phantom Menace, I believe it is. Anyway, not a great looking looks, uh creature. Looks like younger Yoda in a toupee. Like like <laughs> like, like like it looks like uh looks like looks like a gremlin, honestly. Looks like Yoda with the Irishman de aging process applied to him. <laughs> But so, so yeah, so, so the, the species is not called Yoda. Like, that's like saying all Wookiees are called Chewbacca. They're not, right? And so we don't know what to call this thing. But one idea we had when, when you and I knew that there was a small being in the series, we had some theories. Mm-hmm. And one of them was that whatever it might be, might be a clone. We were like, is it a Palpatine clone? Is it Ray? Is it like all sorts of, we had all sorts of theories for what it might be. I'll confess a, a small Yoda-like thing uh, never occurred to me. But we but, did, so what but he, we did yeah. hear rumors of Yoda was in the show, right? Right. You remember hearing right. that? Like that there was buzz. Oh, I do. There was buzz about Yoda. So are we allowed, can we do like what we, what our guess was going in? Like, or what each of our guesses was going in? <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I thought it was Ray. <laughs> I, I thought this was gonna, yeah, yeah, we thought maybe this was gonna be like a Rise of Skywalker prequel and we were gonna find out how Ray got to Jakku. That she was uh, protected by the Mandalorian and the Mandalorian's yeah. the one that dropped her off after yeah. you know, basically protecting her for long enough. And I thought when I heard the Yoda, you know, on the, as you said, I like what you said, like you went out and you heard this news on the wind. Like that's journalism, man. You walk out your front door and just the, it's like Cinderella, the birds and the animals are like, Hey, did you hear Yoda's in the Mandalorian? And, uh, uh, I thought, okay, he's going to get Ray. And then at some point, like moment of doubt, all hope is lost. Like Yoda is going to appear to him. Yes, because, because Yoda, like Yoda's, like Yoda's raised guardian angel or something, you right. know? Uh, I was, I don't know that I was fully prepared for a little gumdrop baby Yoda. Oh, a little gumdrop. So, <laughs> but we had, we had ideas that, that this, whatever this is might be a clone because listen, this thing was, is 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, Yoda was 900 when he met Luke. So, uh, you know, the, 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 that lines up to me. 50 years old is still a baby. Um, but that puts the uh, creation of this being uh, right back when Anakin was born, like mm-hmm. almost exactly when Anakin was born. And right around that time, they started doing a lot of work with cloning. So we were like, is this a Yoda clone? Question mark. And, do you have, and the, do you have any like emotions around that, Anthony? Well, do yeah. you want it to be Yoda clone? I mean, there was cloning. Cloning was in like technically like the Clone War era, right? Where they yeah, started making this which army. Later. But it was yeah. Anakin. The whole question is like, w- w- isn't the question like, did Palpatine cause his creation, or was this the Force that caused his like virgin birth? Which goes back to a very George Lucasy thing of like ancient mythology and the gods being, you know, not born of of man and woman, but really like springing from the mind. In a way uh, that 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 uh, that I guess makes them more pure or you know unique among uh, other beings. So like I guess it could be cloning, but it also could be the implication could be that this that Yoda just is another expression of the Force, right? 
Right. And so, and if you want to talk about balance, we, we referenced this, uh, viral Freddie Prince Jr. sort of rant thing that went around on our preview episode, uh, last week. And I want to reference it again because the driving, um, idea in that little speech that he gave about Star Wars and the whole idea of Star Wars, uh, which he got from Dave Filoni, which Dave Filoni got from George Lucas, is this idea of balance. You guys know this, balance of the force. That's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. So is a question is like, was an Anakin type creature created 50 years ago and a yo a new Yoda ish creature created 50 years ago and that's our our light and dark balance. Interesting theory. I like that one. Question mark. We don't know. We don't know any of this. But what's fun is that the Mandalorian has been given permission to play in the world of Yoda and a Yoda looking creature. You mentioned mythology and gods and sort of biblical storytelling. So one option we have for this creature is Green Moses. I'm just going to float that to you. You can chew on it. Decide if you like it. Green Moses playing on a double bill with <laughs> with Dolomite and Shaft. Like that just sounds like a 1970s black exploitation character. Oh, so that's a no. Okay. So, uh the reason why this might be the time for a Yoda thing to a- appear in Star Wars um, has to do with Dave Filoni, uh, Dave Filoni's connection to George Lucas. Um, I think like my, my, we don't know this and maybe, maybe we'll get like firmer reporting on this, um, as this goes on. But like my theory is if Dave Filoni, uh, who directed this episode and is an executive producer on the series, if he is George Lucas's Padawan, his, his, the sorcerer's apprentice, the guy who trained under George Lucas, I feel like if George would let anyone play in the Yoda pool, it would be Dave Filoni, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, if, if, I think he would definitely trust Filoni with the, um, with the sort of mythic pseudo-religious elements of this, because that's a big deal to Filoni. You know, what the, the deeper meaning of Star Wars as a philosophy is something that Filoni is really into. So, you know, we joke calling him Green Moses, uh, but like Yoda really does serve, uh, an angelic purpose in the Star Wars canon. You know, he's, again, there, there's, there aren't other versions of him. There aren't other, you know, he's not part of a society. He's alone. He's very much the, the, the wise old man who lives atop the mountain, in this case, a swamp world. And I think, um, (laughs) I think Filoni has played with him before in in Rebels and in the Clone Wars. Right, in the animated things. That yeah, and yeah. In, and in Rebels, you know, he made Yoda appear as a vision once and and always got providing guidance to like young Ezra, the you know, aspiring would-be Jedi if Jedi were still being trained. Uh actually what was kind of funny about that is he made him look like the little toy, the little toy Yoda uh from from uh from Years of Kenner past, you know, you remember that thing had like a little, a little like a uh, tan cloak, but it also had this inexplic- yeah. inexplicable orange snake around its neck, <laughs> you know? I had, I had that toy. Yeah. I think yeah. everybody yeah. had that toy. And I can't remember now whether he ended up getting the snake or not, because I think that might have cost too much money and broken their budget, but he made the Yoda look like the toy. And, um, that's what I kept thinking of when I saw a little, little, 
Are we calling him Green Moses? Are we going with that? No, 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 no. <laughs> you, uh, you can call him Shamrock Shake. You can call him whatever you want. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, green, like I said, Green, Green Moses sounds like a green exploitation movie, <laughs> like crime fighting, <laughs> crime fighting badass in the galaxy. But, uh, but he, um, he, I think that he, he looks like a cute little toy. He looks like something yeah. that I, you know, that I, I, when I saw it, I thought, oh, every kid is going to want one. Even if it's like a marshmallow on a stick with like sort of gritty, oh, absolutely. <laughs> gritty yeah. sugar on top. But like, it's, it's, um, I think that, I think Dave really does get the heart of Yoda, the philosophy of Yoda. And, uh, surely George would have, uh, if he had misgivings about this, would have at least felt comfortable, uh, that Dave had a hand in it. Um, the, what's interesting, um, it, Star Wars has always been a, the word is, I, I learned this from um, my friends over the Blank Check podcast. The word is toyetic, right? Star Wars has always been a toyetic pro- property, which means, uh, you know, they have, they make their stories sometimes with toys in mind or toys naturally spring out of the stories that they tell. Um, you, you just have to look at how many people had like stuffed porgs or how many people have like little R2D2 things, cassette players, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, that, that baby green thing, that little, that little shamrock shake is a very toyetic uh character for sure um and we should mention that this seems to be a puppet character uh which you know is very important to me i'm not a huge fan of cg yoda um yoda puppet yoda did return in the last jedi we saw they used the original molds for puppet yoda uh when when he was forced ghosting with luke in the last jedi and uh, i'm a big fan of puppet yoda so this is this is a little puppet um and that makes me happy yeah. so yeah it had a very tactile look about it yeah good. All right. So, and, and I'm, I'm going to gender this thing he because the Mandalorian does at one point. Uh, he calls it he. So I'm going to say he until I learn otherwise. That's All what right. I've decided to do. Uh, let us go down to your conversation with John Favreau because John talks about a lot about Dave Filoni and a lot about Dave's connection to George and why that gave them license to do a lot of the things they did in this series. Well, I was talking to, to Kathy Kennedy and uh, presenting to her this, you know, uh, I came in to, to, to kind of pitch in the, you know, out of the blue to her. You know, I just came in with an idea for when the when the Disney streaming service was announced. And I had been talking to Kathy about the idea of collaborating for, for many years, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but, it, it, you know, it, it, but I was a... You know, it wasn't until the, the streaming service that I I saw a, a way to tell a story in the way that I wanted to at the scale that I wanted to, and, and it seemed this new medium was going to be um, a really good fit for it. And so I came in with a pretty well thought through idea of the time frame, the world, and the characters that I wanted to present. And as I laid them out to her, and she realized that it was about Mandalorians, she. Mm-hmm immediately thought of Dave, who had been talking to her as somebody who was inside Lucasfilm, who was talking to her about projects that were related to Mandalorians as well. And she asked me if I knew him, and I said, do I know him? I know him for for (laughs) 10 years. It felt like a really good partnership because I was bringing in the background in live-action filmmaking and in storytelling from my perspective of, you know, the mythic form and the monomyth and the hero's journey that I had learned you know, uh, and, and was inspired to learn through watching the work of George. And he had been there working hand in hand with George uh, 
for all this time. And so we were very good. And he also had a background in animation, Mm -hmm. which really informs uh, uh, the first part of the workflow of the way that I've been working with technology since uh, since the Jungle Book. Because I've been really trying to emulate the front end of a animated production in the way that we uh, move into post-production. So there was a a very good complementary set of skills that we both shared and you know, I don't want to misrepresent, you know, I don't want, I don't want people to think that he's just a director and a, and a guy that, that I hired to be part of my ensemble of filmmakers. Mm-hmm. He's somebody who's truly a partner. It strikes me that the Mandalorian, I know you're drawing a lot from like the man with no name, the Clint Eastwood, yeah. Sergio Leone Westerns, like this is a, a loner character. And yeah, I, 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 what I like about Dave's work on, on rebels and, and the clone wars is he really gets at the, uh, at the heart of a character, sometimes it's a it's like a, a sidekick partnership, like Obi Wan and Anakin, and sometimes it's like the the mentor uh, apprentice thing with Ahsoka and Anakin, and 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 uh, other times uh-huh. like the family dynamic in Rebels. What did uh-huh. he bring, or what did you draw? What did you draw out of each other when it came to telling the story of uh, of the Mandalorian? I think it started with our love of Star Wars mm-hmm. and our sense that we really wanted to honor everything that had come before and that we didn't use, we weren't using Star Wars as a springboard to tell a story that we could not have told otherwise. We wanted to tell a story that fit into the world that George created. Mm -hmm. And I think that Star Wars exists as something that if you have enough people around who understand it and care about it, and you discuss ideas or thoughts or storylines or characters, you could get a pretty good sense of whether or not it fits into that world. Mm -hmm. And so I think together we were able to help um, understand the way that this story could fit into that world and to also reach back to what influenced George Lucas in the first place when he set out to tell this space opera. Mm -hmm. And... And he was heavily influenced by Kurosawa, by samurai films, and mm-hmm. by that cross-pollination between samurai and Western, of classic Westerns, and and also World War II, um, World War II action films sure. as well. And so we were really exploring the iconography of what had influenced George in the first place. And together we did a deep dive into a lot of films that... that were around long before Star Wars to see how that might influence the way that we present that through the lens of the Star Wars universe. And I know that there's a, a, a an appreciation that George has for the the way that 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 Dave and I are working together. Your storytelling always, I think, there's if there's a theme amid all the different types of uh, films you've made and stories you've told is. There's always a strong theme of friendship, even when there are characters who are kind of going it alone. They eventually amass people around them. And I mean, going back to Swingers, you know what I mean? Like that's such a great friendship story. I never thought of it that way, but but thanks for thanks for yeah. thanks for thinking about it that much. I I, I, I think you're probably onto something. <laughs> it, it, it's um, and what I remember about being a kid, especially with Star Wars toys, is uh is is not playing by myself in the backyard, but having my best friend Joey come over and and yes. making up stories yes. together. Is that how it felt with Dave yes. doing the Mandalorian? Yes. Yeah, you did. You said it. Mm-hmm. 
it was Orson Welles who said that you're playing with the big, making a movie is like playing with a big train set. Mm -hmm. And there's no bigger, there's no bigger train set than Star Wars. Um, cataloging everything and, 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 and maintain, you know, keeping, cataloging all the assets and, and costumes and aliens that we have this, um, we have access to all this stuff that these great, these great creative people had made before us. Yeah. And so we're, sometimes we're building our own stuff. Sometimes we're repurposing stuff that was there before. We even go through drawings that were, that, uh, for different ideas that had been, uh, that hadn't been used on previous productions. And we look at these things where, like, we're dealing with Doug Chang, who works with mm -hmm. Lucasfilm and is one of our, yeah, no doubt. You know, who, who, who works on, you know, is our, uh, works on the design aspect of the show. And we're looking at all this artwork. And then all the way back to the Macquarie stuff, cracking open the old Macquarie books and saying, "Hey, this design was never used. Let's let's have this character come into the world." I mean, that's like a dream come true if you grew up like we did, watching Star Wars yeah. and playing with those toys, with those with those little four-inch figures, mm -hmm. those little, little little posable uh, action figures. And now we're getting to to play with you know you're having real astromechs rolling around the set. You have <laughs> You know, approving new blaster designs and looking at people walking around stormtrooper armor—it's uh, yeah, it's a—it's a bit of a thrill. And for somebody like me, who I made a lot of movies, and and so when you get to work on something that really excites you and feels like something new and something different, uh, you really, you really uh, uh, appreciate that and and make the most of it. And and also because it's not a movie, it doesn't feel like. If you make it, it's done, and people look at it. Yeah. And if they like it, maybe you get to make another one later. This one, we're going to be filming the second season while the first season, when the first season's coming on online, and people are going to be seeing it. So You're living it for a while, we're going to get to you know. So we get we get to be in a conversation with the audience, yeah. we get to go back and forth with them, and that's really. You know, and not over the course of many years, literally over, you know, immediately yeah. you're, you're back and forth and, you're, and, and making the stories. It's nice. So to, that, that's exciting. It's nice to have somebody like Dave then by your side, like just to share it with you. You know, you get to look at each other, I'm sure, when you see some of the things you're creating and, you know, get to geek out a little in addition to being a professional. That must add to the energy of it all, right? I think it, I, I, I like to think, I know that like with, with, with chefs, when they love what they're cooking, you can mm -hmm. taste it in the food. And I'm hoping that, the passion that we have and the excitement that we have and the joy that the whole team has in putting this thing together is something that you could feel when you watch it because oh. it's certainly on the set and it's certainly something that we're, you know, it's a tremendous amount of work, but we love it. Yeah. And we, 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 we jump to, you know, there's just not enough time in the day sometimes, but <laughs> we, you know, I definitely right. go home invigorated and exhilarated and then we talk <laughs> the weekends about what else we could do. Yeah. So it really feels like we're throwing a big, a big party. Yeah. And planning a big party, I and, and so that's that's very fun. And and I would say with what's interesting about Dave to get back to him mm -hmm. is that the way that he even came to be working at, at Lucasfilm really feels like he won a contest. Mm -hmm. You know that he won a Star Wars fan contest, and he got to be, you know, he got to to be, uh, you know, allowed to work on the ranch and allowed to work on Star Wars. He and, got the golden and, ticket. And He's was, Charlie, right? He's he Charlie. Got the golden ticket. He really did. <laughs> and he got to learn from from his idol, mm -hmm. you know, from and, and so you know, and so now he has that knowledge. He studied like anything else, when you have a teacher that you studied under for that long, you have a certain aspect of that passed down and it becomes part of you. 
And so uh, that's, you know, as, as much as, as, as it's great to work with Dave, there's also a sense that he really understands and is a direct connection to the very genesis of all of this and, and the amount of time that he spent with George and how mm-hmm. much, how deep his understanding. Not that we never depart from, you know, uh, from what he would have done on other projects, but we, at least we understand that there's a consistency and we understand where we are connected to it and where we depart from it. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At eBay, you'll always get that feel of real because your fashion purchase will be backed by authenticity guarantee. Whether it's a knit bag, a must-have watch, dreamy jewelry or fire sneakers and fresh streetwear, every step will feel authentic, every flex will feel real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay authenticity guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. So, all right. So that is the Yoda of it all. We are going to talk a little bit more about like foundlings, which is a, an interesting theme mm-hmm. in this episode a little later on. Uh, but let's go back to the beginning and start at the very beginning. We get a new, uh, to my eyes, a new logo at the beginning, right? This like the Star lights, Wars thing. Yeah. Lights on a hel- on helmets yeah. uh, thing. Do you think this is the Star Wars TV logo? Does that, does that seem right? It was pretty slick. I mean, I guess they're, probably just conscious of the uh of the significance of that fanfare the 20th century fox fanfare at the beginning of uh the original trilogy and prequels and probably want to just give you a little uh, a little bit of a almost like an epigram you know just a little intro get you in let you know a little send up a little signet <laughs> another word that's uh important in the show uh yes. <laughs> to symbolize that this is a uh, star wars so yeah i thought it was kind of cool looking um i agree and then we get this uh so we start with this i'm calling it a cold open even though it's not technically cold open but it takes place on a snow planet so why not right very good uh <laughs> <laughs> so this is the man the mandalorian getting his first bounty that mm-hmm. we see um and it is a very, we get first, the first set piece is this sort of cantina, uh, 
uh, moment, which is so Western you could die. And we talked about Western influences on this, but like basically I think he enters the room to pan flutes. I'm pretty sure that's on the soundtrack. Yeah. And you've got a bartender, the bartender slides him a drink. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's what a lot, is it? A, there's a lot of, we don't like your kind around here. What, uh, are, you, a lot of- <laughs> what are you looking at? Like he's got a helmet on. I don't know if he's looking at anything. <laughs> you know, you got no peripheral vision on this thing. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, he, uh, he walks in and the flutes, I mean, that to me, the instant I, I saw and heard that, I, I thought of, uh, Ania Morricone and, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, Fistful of Dollars. And, uh, we talked about that in our, our preview episode. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, look, there's a long tradition of snow westerns too, like everything from, uh, The Hateful Eight to Mr., uh, uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. So, mm, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, snow westerns are a thing. And that's definitely where we are here. A little, a little frontier. It looks like a, almost like a sea. There's like some sort of, it's almost like an Arctic town where they're doing some sort of sea trawling. The bad guys, the tops are called trawlers. And one of them is played by Tate Fletcher, who is uh, a former MMA fighter who like just turns up as a thug in everything. (laughs) He's like one of the white supremacists from the finale of uh, Breaking Bad. He was uh, uh, brutally executed after a battle with John Wick in the original movie. Uh, And, uh, you know, he turns up here uh, given the Mandalorian a hard time for spilling his drink. Then we get I my favorite line of the episode comes really early. What was it? And, and it's Amanda going, I could bring you in warm or I could bring you in cold. <laughs> <laughs> Look at right, you which- breaking out the impressions. That's very good. That's Thank a, you. a very nice my- Pedro Pascal by way of Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah like my it. Pedro my Pedro Clint impression. Um <laughs> yeah, which is basically a we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. So mm-hmm. it's a very dirty hairy sort of like yeah. are you feeling lucky punk yep. sort of line, right? Mm-hmm. So uh he's here to to collect a bounty on a on a mithril uh, played by Horatio Sands, mm-hmm. uh, this blue guy blue, and uh, blue yeah, fishy bulbous kind of guy. Like he just looks like he should be in a tank of water. Right. right? I think at one point he's like, ah, oh, my gills or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and he's like, oh, I'm not gonna make it. I love he's like playing off his sympathies, like a guy in the back of a squad car, like oh, I'm not gonna make it back for Life Day. I guess see my family. Right. So Life Day, for those who don't know, is that this is a Christmas special reference, right? Yeah, that was, you know, they don't have Christmas in the galaxy because they don't have, uh, they don't have Judeo-Christian. They just <laughs> they have Green Moses, they, they have but green no Moses. Christ. They don't have Christ, but, uh, they have Green Moses, but it's, um, you know, it's, uh, you gotta have some kind of holiday to celebrate, right? So you, you honor the maker on Life Day. And that's when Chewie, uh, I guess the premise of the original. <laughs> The much maligned Star Wars holiday special, uh, they have to get back to, uh, to Kashyyyk f- to celebrate Life Day with Chewie's family. Uh, what was that kid's name? The one who's in all the gifts now? Uh, oh, I don't know. I've never seen a Lump- holiday special. Lumpy. I think his, I can't remember whether it's his little bit, ba- like the, like his tween Chewbacca is, uh, look, we're not calling the species Chewbacca. Like the little tween Wookiee is called Lumpy, I think, or is that, I can't remember. Is that, is that Chewie's wife? I mean, of all, of all the references I expected to have, of all the Star Wars properties I expected to like find a reference in this show, the, the holiday special was not one of them. So, so, you know, good, good, like extra marks for trying they really with get, this life day reference. They really got that. Um, they really slipped that under the door before it slammed shut. Yeah. It's, <laughs> that was fun. Uh, Brian Posehn gets a short lived cameo, mm-hmm. right? As, as this, as, 
what land speeder driver. Uh, we find out that the Mandalorian is is mildly prejudiced towards droids, right? He doesn't like droids. Everybody has a problem with droids. <laughs> Everyone. Well, like you know, in the original Star Wars, we don't serve your kind in here. Like you know, yeah, like droids. Whatever it is about droids, man, people are like GTFO. They're taking our jobs. They're taking uh, Brian Posehn's job. That's what it is. You're right. This is a this is a they presaged the blue collar revolt against automation. <laughs> well done, George. Yeah. Um, um, the Mandalorian ship is, I think the model is a Razor Crest, right? And so, I don't know, just, just write that down. I don't know if you- Razor Crest, I think that's the actual name of the ship, like Millennium. Oh, is it? Okay. Okay. Razor Crest, uh, another toyetic moment, right? Like, that's the Mando ship is Razor's Crest. Yeah. I mean, a lot of kids grew up having the Slave One, the, uh, Boba Fett ship, and it came came with a little, like, frozen in carbonite Han Solo, and this one has, like, six- fugitives that come sliding out of its uh nether regions <laughs> out of its hall <laughs> to uh that sounded weirder than it should have but like, <laughs> the family showing sort of like yeah it's sort of like uh instead of just one frozen body now you've got like four or five bad guys that he's uh dropping off we uh yeah we see uh this this poor bounty get frozen in carbonite and then we're on to the next location which looks like a you know you you mentioned in the preview episode that every planet has a you know <laughs> ecosystem one ecosystem right I'm calling this one the foggy rock planet uh is is what I've decided to call this one where we meet grief carga um and you spotted something very special in the background here that even my second time through, I couldn't see with my own eyes. What did you spot? You did see it though, right? Did you end up seeing it? It's like an eight, the 18 minute, 31 second mark. Like that's, I, I didn't see it. I saw your screen cap in your piece on Vanity Fair about Easter eggs in this episode. If you haven't read Anthony's piece yet, you should to see with your own eyes. What do we see, Anthony, at 18 <laughs> minutes and 31 seconds? <laughs> well, you see. A kind of like underworld, little not not criminal, but like underground lair where there are a lot of Mandalorians. There are little Mandalorian kids running around with their own unique little helmets. Uh, there are, you know, a couple of Mandalorians look like they're playing a game off to one side. And there's one who walks along the uh, the ledge beside our hero, the Mandalorian, and uh, he's got the coloring of Boba Fett, the sort of uh gray blue mixed with green and uh, a couple of little signatures of yellow and red on him and the thing that i mean although like uh you might say like well they all look the same right with the helmet and the gear and all that but like this coloring is very specifically boba fett and it's funny because i did the screenshot and uh it's very much like a George Surratt painting. Like it's all like grainy and pointillism right now, uh, because it is in the background. It's meant to be indistinct. It's not like you remember in the special edition of Star Wars when they add Jabba back to the yeah. mix and mm-hmm. Han Solo kind of steps over Jabba and then like has his exchange with Jabba and Jabba walks away and then Boba Fett walks into camera, looks at the camera, turns back and walks off camera, which is very much a. Ladies and gentlemen, Boba Fett for you. <laughs> uh, this isn't like that. This is, you could watch this a bunch of times and not notice it because he is very grainy in the background. And even the screenshot is kind of like the, I, I think I, I just said Surat, but it's also very Bigfoot, that image of Bigfoot in the woods. Sure. Like, could be, could not be, uh, kind of hard well, to say. 
very I indistinct. Say, I will say I was very skeptical when I just read, because I read your piece before I saw the images. And when I read that you had seen it, I was like, sure, sure. And then I saw your little Sunday in the park with Boba Fett. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I think it might be. So, uh, you know, well, alleg- allegedly Boba Fett went into the Sarlacc uh, pit, but like, we think, anyway. Now well, there's the point is... There's the Mandalorian deeper, is not Boba Fett, right? He's not Boba Fett, but and and the thing that that really sells it is not just the coloring of the armor, but like that he has the dent in the helmet on the upper left side. That's like, that's you don't do that if you meant. For, I just meant for that to be another Mandalorian. Like you don't put that particular marking on the character unless you intend for people to go, is it? And I think Filoni and um and John Favreau are just like laughing seeing people go oh is that boba fett because the, they get to go i don't know is it and is they it? don't have to answer it <laughs> but there is a there is a little bit of provenance here in aftermath the novel written by chuck wendig that's you know takes place after the events of uh return of the jedi but before the battle of jakku where they really did kind of mop up the remnants of the uh of the empire uh, he has these little interstitial chapters, you know, Han and Chewie show up, they're running a new mission. And at, at one point he describes, I think it's like a junk seller on Tatooine who has armor, Mandalorian armor that has been recovered that looks very similar to Boba Fett's. So it's not necessarily Boba Fett, but it could be somebody who just picked up his armor and is trying to be, you know, part of the Mandalorian community. There we go. So, um, you, you can make, you can make your own, uh, draw your own conclusions, basically. Um, but someone who is definitely here is Grief Karga, mm-hmm. who is sort of running bounties. Um, he is who will pay, uh, the Mandalorian. And he is also someone who will give the Mandalorian new jobs. Something we, some, I think two very important things we learn in this exchange between Grief Karga and the Mandalorian. Um, one is that he, the Mandalorian would rather be paid half in calamari flam, which is a, which is a, you know, a monetary unit. Um, um Admiral got, Akbar, right? Is a calamari, right? Calamari flan. So well, he'd is, rather be, What's the name of the currency? Flan? I think it's flan. That's what my closed captioning said. Calamari I mean, like. Flan. Oh, really? Like, like, like the, like the Mexican dessert? Like, yeah, like a custard. Yes. <laughs> it does. It does have like, it did have like a squishy sound to it it's when he Welsh. handed it over. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, huh, interesting. Like that the money is, uh, it's, it's been in the sea. <laughs> you know, it's squishy. Right. But so, so the, but the, he would rather take half of his payment mm-hmm. in calamari flan. Then the full payment imperial credit in imperial credits. And that like tells us something about how the Mandalorian feels about the empire without saying this is how the Mandalorian feels about the empire. Right. That's my, that's a conclusion that I drew from that decision. Okay. Um, that's an inch. That's not the conclusion I drew. Ooh, what did you draw? I thought of it as, um, as, as something like, uh, after the fall of, uh, the Confederacy in the Civil War, what would Confederate money have been worth? You know, like, uh, is it, does it have any value whatsoever? I just thought he was rejecting it because he didn't want, uh, 
that it was worthless. You know what I mean? That it was actually, no, like, well, even though it totally, Karga said it still spends, right? Yeah, he says it still spends. So I think, S- I think. So I like your interpretation. I, yeah. that didn't occur to me, but I'm going to go your way because I like it better. Oh, oh lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but my then- initial reaction was just, oh, it must not be worth. It must not be worth anything. Now I'm blanking. Isn't there a movie where they, they go looking for treasure and they end up finding the treasure, but it's like Confederate money. So they're like, great. Oh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but that sounds right to me. Uh, email us still watching bot at gmail.com. If you know what, which Western Anthony is talking about. I'm if you know good. what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. And then the other thing that we learn, um, that I think is important is about grief karga, which is, um, or, or more about the state of the universe, um, where the Mandalorian is talking about like the kind of jobs and what they pay and what kind of work you can get right now. Um, and grief karga says they don't mind if things get sloppy, they being like whoever is collecting the bounty or whatever. And, um, so, so that to me establishes the lawlessness of this world. Right. The code yeah. of the bounty hunter, the value of the bounty hunter is degraded in this lawless world where things are allowed to get sloppy. Right. Exactly. And he's a character who lives on the edge of society, but, um, he's sort of a, I mean, he's kind of, he, he's a bad guy. He lives among outlaws and yet he's commissioning vigilantes to go after outlaws and he's doing it in a very judicious way because he wants everyone who is in his, you know, quote unquote guild to have money to be paid for. So he's kind of this patron who's looking after people. Uh, but he's, you know, the way Carl talked about him with us, he also thought of him as like a bad guy, guy who would do a lot to survive. And what I really like about the grief Karga character is he's trying to be good in a bad place, in a bad time, in a time of desperation and starvation and collapse. And you have these characters like the Mandalorian who are existing in that atmosphere who now have the responsibility to care for something that's pure, that's innocent, that's sweet and, and young and needs help. And so you have the corrupt, you know, these, these people who've become corrupt in order to survive, uh, uh, taking care of an innocent. Yeah. And I think that, um, that theme of code, your own personal code, your moral code. What is your code in a lawless world? I think that's going to be a really important theme and that applies to Greek Karga and definitely to the Mandalorian. Um, you know, and then we, we get more information, sort of what the Mandalorian thinks uh, of Imperial forces, I believe, in this next scene with Werner Herzog, right? Because, uh, Werner Herzog plays the client, the unnamed client. Uh, he's being guarded by a bunch of, uh, guys in, in, in you know, trooper armor. He's wearing, uh, an Imperial sort of seal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so you have talked before about how this is a guy who's holding on to, imperial ideology after the fall of the empire yeah um yeah. and then he also there's a doctor character who pops mm-hmm. out and almost gets blasted and uh um uh well what's the actor's name uh Ome- obed abtahi oh that's right I think. and yeah you know and that leads me to give credence to the clone theory because this is a guy who a doctor right you know he seems like a doctor but he doesn't seem like a very rep he's got a little bit of dr nick from the simpsons about him like just like <laughs> he, he seems a little dirty surrounded by these scruffy like these stormtroopers who've clearly seen some hard times and yeah and uh they're really beaten up and muddy and bloody and uh and uh you got this doctor there who seems a little shifty you know and he he uh 
Uh, I mean, he, he doesn't look like an OBGYN, so, uh, and he's 50 years too late for that. So I think, uh, he, he must be there to, to study this thing, right? He seems a little yeah. more like a scientist than an MD. Was that your read? He's, uh, yeah. And I think his, his desire to have the thing alive mm-hmm. makes me, um, believe, yeah, that he thinks of it as a specimen to mm-hmm. be examined. And he's very distressed at this idea that, like, the client would be okay with it coming back dead, you know? So. Yep. Uh, then we have to talk about this, this method of payment here and this, uh, sort of bleeds us into our next scene. So I want to talk about, um, I believe it's pronounced Beskar, right? Which mm-hmm. is this Mandalorian armor, oh, iron that they use for their armor. Mm-hmm. And then we like, he, he gets this one little piece of it, but a whole, uh, Camtono of Beskar is waiting for him at the end of this job. Uh, and he takes it to this armor character. And, uh, we are going to now pause to talk about Mandalorians and their armor and what it all means. <laughs> um, Anthony, do you have some, I have some thoughts. Let me know what thoughts you have here. About what the significance of Mandalorian armor is. Yes. So, uh, he stops and visits in that underground lair, this, um, this blacksmith who's voiced or performed by Emily Swallow, uh, female Mandalorian, she takes this little iPhone-sized cube of, uh, <laughs> of Beskar, and, uh-huh. uh, and, and, you know, it's also imprinted with the Imperial seal, this yeah. sprocket-like seal, which, I mean, reminds me of, like, Nazi gold, or, uh, yeah. Uh, I think the movie I was thinking of was Sahara with Matthew McConaughey, where they go in search. Oh, of conf- not a western. <laughs> yeah, where they go. I mean, but kind of like where they go in search of like I think it's Confederate gold, but um, but um, you know, you you have this uh this this thing that's precious to them, but it's marked by I think what they would consider evil. And she goes, oh, it says something like, "I haven't seen this since this was from the Great Purge." And then we yeah. see flashbacks of a young family running amid battle and explosions and blaster fire. And I don't know if the young boy is supposed to be the Mandalorian or whether this was something the Mandalorian witnessed. I'm kind of leaning toward the, the, the former. Um, and because I think that it, it informs his decision to be a protector is that maybe at some point he was protected as a boy from this right. purge. So she melts down this cube of Beskar, which, um, it's not, doesn't have quite the same properties, but I think it's, it's it's sacred to the Mandalorians. Like it's sacred in the way that vibranium is sacred to the people of Wakanda in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like it's it's a part of their heritage and their culture in addition to being this useful item. So he she ha- she makes this little piece <laughs> I just, of Oh, what were you Can I just uh-huh. I just say really quickly that I wrote I definitely wrote vibranium in my notes, <laughs> but I also I also wrote Valerian steel just to make sure that we're hitting all the like, <laughs> and Game of Thrones. All, yeah, we got yes, all the properties the here. Geek yeah. trifecta. You got Marvel, <laughs> Game of Thrones and yeah, uh yeah, and yeah. Star Wars. Uh-huh. And and uh she melts it down and makes a piece of uh of shoulder armor for him. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder is he going to be showing up to her throughout like building oh i hope building I hope. his armor you know like as he goes like becoming she and she says something like has your signet been revealed and he goes not yet and she says soon i don't know what that means what do you think it means i have no like i looked uh you know deep into the wikis to try to find something about this um a, a mandalorian signet um there are signets 
like signet rings in the universe and blah, blah, blah. But it, what it seemed like to me when she was saying signet, um, is almost like a sigil. It's om- or almost like your house in Harry Potter or almost like your Patronus in Harry Potter. It's like something that is, you know, something that she can mark the armor with some sort of symbol yeah. that is going to be revealed to him, maybe spiritually in some way that has to do with what his destiny is as uh, a Mandalorian. But it, but it seems new. It seems new to the mythology. So that was my, that was the implication to me of that phrase, but we don't know. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it, it's, it's whatever it is. Uh, Patronus, that's a good, that's a good explanation. Um, I think it's evidence that like there is something, uh, that he has to prove, that he has to earn. Yeah. And yeah. reveal, you know. What kind of man will you be? His, uh, right. as my son who loves Ninjago would say, his true potential. What is his true <laughs> potential? Look at that. We're bringing in all sorts of stuff from all sorts of quadrants. I love it. <laughs> uh, well, uh, what's, I mean, we don't want to bog, uh, listeners down with too much like Mandalorian, M- Mandalore, Lorian lore. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we recommended some Clone Wars episodes, some Rebels episodes that you might want to watch, but I did do some like research into some Mandalorian stuff that I think might be helpful to chat about at uh-huh. least briefly. There, I will just say, you know, to, to vastly simplify the history of the Mandalorian people, like Mandalore is a planet. The Mandalorian people are not, nece- they're, they're humanoid, but they're not necessarily like a singular, type of person and so the thing that unifies them as a as a culture is their armor when they put on the armor they all look the same and that's something culturally that is important to them mm-hmm. they call their armor beskar gum which means iron skin beskar mm. and then gum iron skin so this is their skin this is their identity if you want to talk about another geek property um his dark materials there's something there's these like polar bears that have this armor that is like the armor is so important to them culturally spiritually um in a way that you know is is hard to overemphasize um and the the other thing about the Mandalorian history, right, is that they were a very like they were very warlike um people. They were conquerors. They expanded out into the outer rim of the galaxy. Um and then there was a pushback on that. There was a rising, and this is this is covered in the Clone Wars and Rebels, of of a like a peaceful Mandalore. A like we don't have to be we don't have to be Spartans, right? We can be yeah. a- we can be Athens, we can be something else. And then that was sort of like crushed. And so Mandalore has this sort of split identity of their like martial identity and then their, you know, their thoughtful, spiritual, artistic identity. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Spartans, yeah, I love that you just said Spartans because that really looks like the inspiration for the helmet too. Like they had very yeah. similar designs. So, uh, or at least in terms of the eye, the, the way the eyes are cut out and the, the sort of, uh, uh, vertical slit down the middle. Uh, yeah. Good comparison. So, yeah, I, so I wonder if we're going to see, um, uh, this character who seems to, it's not just, he, he takes the Beskar, he gets his pauldron, his like shoulder piece, but then she also, this armor also talks about how the excess, either the Beskar or the Calamari Flan or whatever, uh, is going to help the other foundlings. So he's, he's a man on a mission to earn money for the greater good, right? We, we feel mm-hmm. like he's a man with a code. 
Um, he's, even though we saw, you know, he's like, he's sending some of the money back to the folks back home. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so to watch him maybe struggle with those two parts of him, the violence and the peace and like, what, what part is he going to pursue? What is he made for? Um, I think is going to be sort of a central question, um, of this show. There's well, a, there's well, a fun qu- oh, quote. Oh, can I, can I add one thing? Yeah, we, we of course, talked about the, course. uh, young yeah. Clint Eastwood from the, uh, Dollars trilogy, the, uh, Sergio Leone spaghetti mm-hmm. westerns. It's a man with no name going through, uh, dealing out rough justice. But also this thing you just mentioned about the Mandalorian handing out some of his, uh, his reward to, uh, to, to these, to this sort of helpless underground, desperate Mandalorian culture of, what seem to be almost refugees. Um, that reminds me a lot of Clint Eastwood from Unforgiven. You know, this old guy, not mm. that the Mandalorian is old, but like who doesn't want to do it anymore. You know, he's not, he's not like that. He's been cured of drink and wickedness and he's not, he killed everything that walked or crawled at one point. Doesn't want to do it. Just wants to look after his son and daughter, but he realizes he has to do it in order to look after them. So there's a weariness to the yeah. Mandalorian that he's doing this for a good cause. He's not just, uh, you know, enriching himself and then, say partying or drinking the spoils that there's a greater good he's working toward even if he sometimes has to do it in a brutal fashion love it um we um we'll talk a little bit more about mandalorian the mandalorian code Mm -hmm. which i researched which i'm really excited to talk about uh but we do want to move on from this i will just read one quote really quickly from a non-canon star wars novel so like don't get mad at me this is non-canon but i think it's applicable um it goes, there are two reasons why we have to wear armor. This is a Mandalorian talking. There are two reasons why we have to wear armor. One is so that we don't get killed too easily. The other is that so that we all look Mandalorian, however different we may be from our brothers and sisters. And so just that idea of the Mandalorian armor as, especially for a refugee uh, race like the Mandalorians, mm-hmm. um, their identity is so tied up in it. So it's so important. Um, and that brings us back to this like purge thing that you were mentioning. Um, we don't know exactly what this is. There is something called the Mandalorian purge, but that took place in a different time frame. So we don't quite yet know what this is, but I, I agree with you. I think the young boy we see in the flashback is definitely supposed to be the Mandalorian. It's a very, uh, Jorel puts Kal-El in the ship and sends him off, right? You get the point of view shot of him in, in mm-hmm. the little like vehicle and the door closing and his parents seemingly sending him away. Um, so very like Superman, once again, talk about Moses, mm-hmm. uh, vibe. And then I just, so I just, based on that, I want to talk to you really briefly about Star Wars and lost children. Um, hmm. we've got, uh, Finn, right? Was like taken from his family. Ray is a lost child. Anakin is taken from his family. Luke. Luke, Luke and Leia f- to a certain degree. Uh, Jen Erso, um, Han and Kira. Um, like this is, this is a theme that Star Wars is very preoccupied with. And so to see the man, both the Mandalorian and this little, uh, Shamrock Shake, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sticking with, I'm sticking with Shamrock Shake. All right. As these like, as these like foundling critters, um, and, and what it means to look out for those, those, those creatures in the galaxy, it just seems such a core part of the Star Wars storytelling. It really is. And I think you can look at, um, a trope from a lot of Disney animation and fairy tales, and fairy tales in general, is that you often have the lost parent, you know, the orphaned character who goes off on his or her own, uh, and has to survive. 
And I think there's a very simple reason for that. And that's that, um, any, any parent is going to look after their kid. They're going to die for their kid. And so if you have storytelling that's aimed at young people, at, at especially at like Star Wars, it can be aimed at little kids, you know, middle schoolers, teenagers, and everybody above, uh, you're, you're, you've got to have a story where the hero goes off on his or her own. And, uh, you can't have that if you have a protective parent. You've got to separate them from that protection. So I think that's, it's sort of like why people would say like, well, why is George Lucas? He's got this preoccupation with cutting off hands. Well, if you got to cut something off, <laughs> that's pretty much it, you know? Uh, and I think it's the same thing. So if you're going to cut something off of a person to put them in a desperate situation, especially a young person, you take away their guardian. You take away Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. You take away mom and dad, and suddenly that person has to fend for, for themselves. And you give them these other guardians, like an Obi-Wan or something yeah. like that, but, or mm-hmm. Qui-Gon, but like, yeah, when you're cut off from that, um, protective shell, you then have to make these, um, harder choices yourself oftentimes about what kind of person you will be. You have to help shape exactly. yourself, right? Well said. Um, yeah. And, and also this, um, you know, George Lucas is a huge student of, of Joseph Campbell and, and like hero mythology and stuff like that. So cutting off your hand, that's a big part of that, but also, the chosen one narrative, which is something that he's preoccupied with. And often those chosen ones like a Moses, um, are, are, you know, sent off uh, a Moses, a Superman, a Harry Potter, whatever it is, are sent off by themselves into the world. And that's just part of the storytelling. So, mm-hmm. um, that's true. Seems to be true of our Mandalorian character and seems to be true of this little green guy. Um, so that brings us to our last stop. Uh, on our trip, which is a, I'm calling it the Arizona Mesa planet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, it's not quite, it's a desert planet, but not like a, like a, you know, it's not Tatooine. It's got a lot of cliffs and stuff like that. So, um, it's very, got, yeah, it's very Arizona, very Utah. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, so we've got, we've got comedy with blurgs. We've got, uh, Nick Nolte's here. Taika Waititi's here, uh, in the form of this Ugna character and, and this droid character. Um, what do you make of this last stop, uh, for the Mandalorians? I mean, yeah, like tr- very traditional Western Monument Valley kind of setting. Uh, he hooks up with, um, Kuil, I guess is how we pronounce his name. Uh, the little Ugnat character that Nolte is voicing. And who looks remarkably like Nick Nolte. <laughs> <laughs> it it's really just like kind of unsettling in a okay, cool way. And, um, uh, you know, uh, what's interesting is, is, is this, uh, Ugnat tells him, I love the way the Ugnat speaks, right? Like he'll say something that he's like, I have spoken. Like it's very much like liking your own post on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Self retweet. Yes. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, which I'm not above. Like if I tweet out a story, you know, that I did in the morning, I'll retweet it in the afternoon. And I just want to add a little cool. I have spoken, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, you know, he says, like, what are you, you're a Mandalorian, you don't know how to ride a blurg? Like, what's your problem? Like, it's so, which makes me think that there's a part of, uh, of the Mandalorian who's still discovering his heritage, if that is indeed his heritage, or if it's one he's mm. adopting, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, um, I think, uh, I thought that was kind of cool. And then that he chooses to help him, that he senses something in 
our hero that is heroic and not just another desperado who's uh, making his way toward through dangerous terrain toward this uh, what's obviously like a little base. Uh, you've got some some bad dudes there, and um, um, like remarkable wild bunch reference at the end with the. Uh, galactic version of a Gatlin gun. I, I wrote Gat, I wrote Gatlin gun in my notes too. Yeah. Yes. You know, yes. Famous, that- famous wild bunch sequence with Sam Peckinpah where they just unload with a Gatlin gun on a, on a whole little, uh, hacienda full of, uh, full of uh, local toughs and like just totally reminded me of that. Gatlin gun for me, um, since I, I've never seen the wild bunch, but for me, that last setup looked like the end of Butch Cassidy yeah. and the Dance Kid, mm-hmm. right? Cause you've got, um, you've got Butch sort of like up against this pillar in the sort of exact same position that the Mandalorian finds himself in at one point. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, all kinds of Western references, but I think those are two very valid ones, uh, that happen right there. We get a little bit more light droid bigotry. And to me, that, um, you know, <laughs> to me, when the Mandalorian's on the cliff and he sees, um, IG 11, uh, and he goes like, ugh, I basically to me it read as like battle droids or bounty droids. I hate those guys. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, like that's Indiana the, Jones. Indiana Jones reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Um, and he, you know, so he reluctantly teams up with this Taika Waititi voiced, uh, bounty droid, um, against these, I believe they're Nyctos. That's what my caption said, which is, there's, aren't there like, uh, Star Wars aliens that are named like Klaatus and Nyctos, which is, uh, um, Day, Day of the Earth's would still yeah, reference. Yeah. A very dorky George Lucas reference. Um, but, uh, you know, cleans them out and then, uh, kills the droid. I don't know that this is the end of the droids are very easily rebuilt. So maybe this is the end of Taika Waititi's droid character. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But, um, shoots, shoots the droid, takes the cannoli, takes the, takes the, uh, takes the cannoli. I like that. The cannoli <laughs> is good. What, what we're going with green Moses, shamrock shake. I like the cannoli. That's the best one. Okay. Leave the droid, take the cannoli. That's amazing, Joanna. <laughs> That's great. Um, so, and, and there we go. And then, and then we get closing credit and we don't know what he's going to do, but it seems like in, in ensuring that this, Little green nugget, this little cannoli, this green Moses, this shamrock shake survives. Um, it seems like he's decided to protect it rather than turn it over. We don't know yet. He could decide to do that. He's not going to let this droid waste that baby. No, no. But is he going to turn, trade that baby for a bunch of, uh, Bacar? I don't know. Beskar, but yeah, but Beskar, uh, Beskar. uh, Thank you. Yeah. I'll, I'll, this, that's going to be my only mistake I ever make with all these. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I didn't mean to Mandalorian splay, dude. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's, that's the question. Um, I'm leaning towards no, but you know, we'll, we'll see, uh, what happens to, to that baby. Well, this the, is, this yeah. is classic noir too. Okay. So to figure out what this thing is, he kind of has to go back to the source. Right? Because, mm-hmm. okay, does he know what a Yoda is? Does he know who Yoda is? Like, does, what's the Mandalorian's understanding of this creature? And I think you, he almost has to go back now and figure out what they wanted it for in order to decide whether he wants to turn it over. But I think it's clear they did not want to, that they're not running some sort of a, a galactic daycare, you know? <laughs> No. And one no. of our, one of our little ones has gone missing and we really need to recover him. This is, <laughs> there's clearly something nefarious here. So he's got to figure out what this is and why people want it. And I think more than one group wants it. So he's been commissioned 
But the IG-11 droid has been uh, given a separate commission, and that commission... And why were the Nictos there in the first place? And what were the Nictos doing there? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, I think think he's got some questions he wants to have answered, and uh, that's going to be part of caring for this creature. When we found out there was a little thing in this show, even though we didn't know what kind of little thing it was, uh, the, the property that I was thought of immediately was Willow, which is about a group of adventurers oh. protecting a baby, uh, on a journey. So, um, uh, the other thing that I think of, and this is, this is, um, uh, way, way less classy than, uh, Willow currently streaming on Disney Plus, uh, which is, um, The Fate of the Furious. I don't know if you saw that, the latest Fast and Furious movie. There's this great fight sequence with Jason Statham and a baby. And I was like, if we get like some great, good, like Mandalorian fighting while also protecting a little, uh, Shamrock Shake, I will be overjoyed. So, um, you know, that's, that's what's coming up on the Mandalorian in theory. We don't know yet. We haven't seen any other episodes, but that's interesting. Like I can, uh, I can get, get behind that where he's, you know, He's got the baby protected and he's got to shoot his way out of somewhere. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the comparison I made in my recap was to, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub or the Road to Perdition, you know, where you've got a, a tough or, or Leon, uh, the, yeah. prof- the professional, professional, you know, where you've got yeah. like a tough, uh, a tough, a tough customer who's got this innocent to protect. And, uh, I just think that's really powerful storytelling. And, and, uh, yeah, I'd love to see that action sequence. That'd be kind of cool. I'll bet you we get it. I mean, all theoretical, but that's that's what we're hoping for. So that is chapter one of The Mandalorian. We'll be back so quickly. Uh, we'll be back on Friday. But first, uh, before we sign off, we want to bring to you our conversation with Carl Weathers. Uh, this was, uh, you know, at the at the Mandalorian Junkin a couple weeks ago. Anthony and I are sharing a mic. So if you hear any echo, echoiness or whatever, that's what's going on there. Uh, but Carl's beautiful voice will come through crystal clear for you uh, in this interview. I think we need to start with this man's name, Grief Carga. Grief Carga, what a name! What it's, a name. I mean, it sounds like grief, right? It, so- it sounds scary. Grief Carga. He's either very, very sad and carrying a lot of baggage, or he's just a weird dude. Grief Carga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What strikes me about him is this is a man who he is living on the fringe of society, on the outside the law, but he's he's like a. He's a bit like a, a patron, right? He's got his his community of bounty hunters, and he looks to take care of them. He's trying to make sure everybody is fed and everybody's taken care of. He doesn't strike me as a bad guy, is he? Well, your interpretation of him is a lot more generous than mine was. When, <laughs> Tell us about your I, interpretation. When I first read him, first of all, when you use a word like patron, it just, for me, it just brings up a whole other kind of grandness, you know? Um I, I, there's something about Grief Karga that reminded me a bit, as I read him anyway, reminded me a bit of, uh, John Houston. Mm. There's something about him that's just a little larger than life and something that you can't quite trust, you know? There's something in that that I really like. Very theatrical, and that was the whole point. I, I, I just kind of wove in a little of it. Like when we're in the cantina and, and the Mandalorian comes in and I'm just telling them, he's asking me and I say, none of them could do it. Nobody but you, man. No, <laughs> you, you know. And, and so there was a little bit of, of Houston that's always fascinated me, you know, from 
good God, from as far back as I can remember. But, of course, the movies uh, was uh, Treasure Sierra Madre, of course, because he, as a director, but also as an actor, it was just so powerful. And then uh, Chinatown, Chinatown, which yeah. he didn't direct, but he acted in it, you know? So, so menacing. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. oh, oh, man, oof. what a, you know, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, at oh. the end of it when she shot, you know? Most so, people never live long enough to realize that under the right circumstances, they're capable of anything. doing anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's a rich character, man, you know? And there was just something about him that even if you were tall next to him, he still towered over you. Because there was something about him that was commanding. So, to your point about Grief Karga, there was some of that that I wanted to utilize in there and still not do a caricature, right? Uh, the name, though, does conjure up so many different things, I think, for so many diff- different people. And for me, it's just another great moniker. You know, it's like Apollo Creed mm-hmm. or Dylan or... or uh, Chubbs Peterson. I mean, you know, Grief Karga, uh, either you'll remember that or you won't. <laughs> but most will, people, I think, will, will remember yeah, it. Yeah. Exactly. So there's this big reveal at the end of the first episode that is this big, you know, uh, closely held secret. What do you feel like that reveal, that moment adds to the Mandalorian series as a whole? The Mandalorian is, I think, in some ways, like every other character in 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 the Mandalorian. There is something about him that's very selfish and self-centered, but there's also something about him that's really altruistic and human. You know, there's a humanity to him. And you might be on a mission to do something where it's just going to get paid for it, and, and you're happy to get paid for it and do your job and go back and do what you do. And then there's something that all of a sudden you kind of find a, I don't know if you'd be compassion or what it is, but for this creature... And you kind of fall for him, you know, and it's so, damn it, uh, you know, of all the, what is it, all the joints in the, you know, all the gin, gin joints in yeah, the world. world, yeah, you know, Listen, you had to walk into this one, yeah, you know, you had to walk into this one, you know. So it's the, I, I think that is one of those qualities about heroes, in quotes, that we love. We find their humanity, you know, or by the same token, is one of the old great tropes, and you see it movie after movie, but it always works, where your hero is really wounded badly. And what does he or she do? They pull out something with a makeshift needle, and they sew themselves up. I mean, come on, man. <laughs> you know how much it hurts just to have the wound. Now you're going to sew yourself up? Those tropes just work. They work over and over and over. So if you have a, a gun for hire, and the gun for hire is supposed to go out and gun down something, but guess what it does? It winds up falling in love with it in its own way. You fall in love with that character. One of my favorite things about the Star Wars universe has always been these people who operate in the middle. There's like the good guys and the bad guys, and then you've got the rogues and the bounty hunters and everyone in the middle. And this feels like a show that's about the middle, about the moral middle ground. Is that something that uh, you, you thought about in making this? These people straddle a line if you will you know uh there's a lot about them that's really admirable and then there's that side of them that's truly selfish or it seems to be leaning toward the devil you know and what you find out though they themselves wind up being tested and the question is which you know when they're tested which direction are they going to lean to and lean into and 
we are fortunate, I think, because of how smart uh, Favreau and Filoni are and how much they know about this universe and how much they know about really writing and creating that they drew characters and put those characters in situations where the characters really had choices to make. And the characters seem to keep making the choices that we want our heroes to make. You know, regardless of where they may start off, we wind up falling in love with them because their moral compass points them in the quote-unquote right direction. You know, now, will they maintain that? That's eh, a whole other thing. We'll see. The pendulum swings back The pendulum forth. does, exactly. <laughs> what do we learn uh, about Grief Karga's history? Obviously, there's a big story going forward with him, but but there was just this amazing galactic civil war that took place. And this this story, The Mandalorian, feels very much like a Western. And so many Westerns were set after the civil wars, old soldiers who went roaming west to to find their fortunes. Uh, what was how does that how does the Western element fit into Grief Karga? And how does what has he done? What was his life like during the events we saw in the original trilogy? That is a brilliant question. We only ask brilliant questions well, on yeah, this podcast. But the reason, part of the reason it's a brilliant question is because I didn't ask it. I didn't care. I didn't want to know. I wanted this character from what I read on the page to give me ideas about how to take the coloring book, open it up, try to stay within the lines, but to use colors that maybe someone else wouldn't utilize. So he is as vivid or as lacking and any kind of vivid color as I could manage to put on screen along with the, you know, in collaboration with everybody else that was doing what they were doing. And if I had to guess, he was living in some pretty dark times. He was doing some, maybe some pretty dark stuff, you know, and as it comes out, you know, when people are under stress, certainly under the stress of, of, of war, probably, or any kind of horrific stuff that's going on, uh, they do whatever is necessary to survive. Do you think he's haunted by that? Is he somebody who's seeking redemption, or is he kind of okay, see, again, or is he amoral? See, I, no, he's definitely not amoral. There is something in if I answer those questions so specifically, then it's harder to play the ambiguity of this person. You know, we all we all may or may not have in our backgrounds different things that we're proud of, or that we that we really have thought of about that experience and what that experience was like and where it led to and and if somebody was hurt or not hurt sometimes just getting through it and getting on the other side of it is enough going back and rethinking it now is reliving it so for grief karga for me and actually in some ways for all of our characters unless in story you're reminded of it you know if if someone says hey you're from so-and-so, aren't you? Yeah, I was there when all that stuff happened. What happened to you in there? Now you're reminded of it. Now you got to relive it. Even if you don't answer the question, you have to relive it. Nobody's asked Grief Karga that question yet. And I want to stay away from it because I don't want Grief to tip off anything about where he comes from or what happened or what he did or didn't do. I want you now to question who he is really. You know, because if I don't give you any insight into background you can't really make a guess i want you to be wondering rather than guessing you know 
Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Was he doing? What's he doing? How is he manipulating that? Well, no, the way it turned out, he wasn't. But, but wait a minute now. Now he's doing this. You know, that is far more interesting to me. You talk about wanting to discover the character on the page. Was there? A line or a choice or a moment that you saw on the page, you say, okay, I really get who this guy is. It's John Houston or whoever. There wasn't a particular line, but that sequence in the, in the cantina of dealing with both Werner's character and with the Mandalorian's character said so much about him. What I was working to convey without a lot of vivid kind of, of, of directing the audience to something, I wanted to convey his relationship with Werner's character, and then to see the difference in his relationship with the Mandalorian's character. Reef Karga is not as commanding with Werner as he is with the Mandalorian. So it sort of suggests something about the power of Werner's character. He's scared of him a little bit. Yes. Yes. You know, there's, you've got to be cautious with this guy, you know, without saying it, but you play your cards maybe a little closer to the vest. Now, with somebody like the Mandalorian, there's largesse. There's, you know, telling him how much you like him and you're the best guy in the world. And yes, you, you are my friend. You know, I trust you. Them, forget them. They're nobody. It's you. And then I've, He's got know, that charisma. Yeah, yeah, you know, you yeah. So how do you show different colors with these different characters, which reveals in a way the relationship that you have to them? Let's talk about another character, but a real-life one. So you have this scene with Werner Herzog, who's yeah. just, he's a larger-than-life character. And, that he is. and you are, too. So, like, yeah. so what's it like, what was that, uh, what was it like working with him? I, I referred, and I, and this is true, I referred to him the entire time on the set as, as Maestro. Because I really think the guy is brilliant. And, I mean, having watched enough of his movies and, you know, we talked a lot when he was on set and, uh, I asked him questions, of course, and we talked about it a lot about his relationship with uh, uh, with Klaus Kinski and you know making movies together, and and he revealed an awful lot about himself in talking about Klaus, you know, because let's face it, they'd worked together and had a lot of problems, and then Werner goes back again, but he not only wants to deal with the same guy, but he wants to deal with him in a situation that's going to be problematic in and of itself, yeah, you know? Hauling that boat over the Oh, mountain. man, the, <laughs> the fights they had. and They had a violent relationship. Yes. It was not just... Coming. It was a love-hate relationship. There's no question in my mind. But Werner clearly saw the genius in Klaus that would work for his films. So he was willing to go there. So, you know, we talked about that and... Um, he turned me on to a book which I really liked. It's called uh, it's called, called the, the the Peregrine, and it's 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 a weird book in its own way, because it's about a man in the UK who went out day after day after day after day after day, and he documents the days watching peregrines and watching them hunt and watching them move around. Nobody else, just this man, reporting about the peregrines. And what he saw, and the, the the prey that the peregrine would go after, and I knew nothing about this, but it was this fascinating book. Now, why is that book on a list that Maestro reads? That's an interesting one. <laughs> so distilling that for me, I still haven't, but, but he turned me on to what I consider to be a fascinating book, because something about the observation being able to watch something and focus on something and commit yourself for months at a time to go out and to do this. Rain, snow, 
shine didn't matter. This guy was out there. Sounds like you had a lot of fun playing Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. Thank, Thank you, Carl Weathers. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you both. All right, so that is it for us. Like I said, we'll be back on Friday uh, with another episode, an interview with series star Pedro Pascal. So we got a lot of goodies for you this season. We're so excited. We do. And forgive us if we seem a little punchy because so this we everybody yesterday was trying to gauge when is the Mandalorian going to actually drop. And we'd heard yeah. like 3 a.m. Pacific time. So, Joanne, I think you were like uh, you were like uh, in bed early, right? You went to bed oh, early. I went to bed at like 7.30. I took a <laughs> basically a nap. Um, and then my friend texted me at like right after midnight and she was like, it's up. And I was like, oh, then I'm up. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and I haven't slept really since. I so. came back. We had a little Vanity Fair event here in L.A. last night uh, oh, with right, NBC. Yeah. So I was, you know, I got back like around midnight and like, you know, people like, uh, Jermaine Lucier of uh, io9 is like tweeting about how he's seen it and I'm like wait what I gotta, I gotta go see this thing like, <laughs> so my wife is exhausted she goes to bed I stay up late watching it uh, trying to you know prepare my recap but uh, but it's been a weird like all nighter in a way right I haven't yep. been one of those since uh, I don't can't remember when so, I mean, uh, for me, it's cl- it's bringing back some Game of Thrones feelings, but I don't think I think future future uh, episodes will land in a more sane fashion for us. A but uh, a more yeah, civilized we'll- time, a little more for a civilized <laughs> era of uh, of a Star Wars release schedule, but, right? Versus this disarray. But, but, but um, yeah. But that's what I love about getting to ch- talk to you. I was, couldn't wait to do this because. Uh, we're so used to Star Wars as a communal experience, right? I mean, there, yeah. there's their series, like the, 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 the Rebels and the, uh, uh, the Clone Wars, but even those have kind of a massive community surrounding them. So there's an instant conversation that happens, uh, before and after each episode. And this is the first time with live action where, I don't know, I'm watching it by myself, right? And I'm like, I can't wait to hear what people have to say. I'm so happy to hear your theories and talk about it with you, but I hopefully are. A little conversation here. We'll uh, start that for other people too, as you, uh, you know, go to work or go to school or watch the episode and talk about it. Uh, it's it's rare to be isolated. That's a new experience with watching <laughs> Star Wars. But uh, you know, we want to bring people together and make sure you email us your theories. Would you want to give that uh, address again so folks can uh, can can shoot us anything they want us to talk about in the next installment? I'm dying to. Still watching pod at gmail.com. Please do send us your comments, questions, and corrections. We will read them out on air. <laughs> uh, you, you're going to want to catch up on everything that Anthony's been writing about over on VF.com about the Mandalorian. He's got a bunch of great pieces up there for you guys to check out, including sort of like an Easter eggy breakdown, including his capture of Bigfoot Boba Fett uh, from from this episode over on that piece. You're going to want to go check that out. Uh, Anthony, where can people tweet at you? On I am at Bresnikan, B-R-E-Z-N-I-C-A-N. I'm at Jarothis, and we will be back on Friday. See you then. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. 
This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.